Well, today we are wrapping up the Upper Room Discourse, as Matt mentioned just a moment ago. It begins, that final sermon begins in chapter 14 through chapter 16, and it actually it starts in the Upper Room in chapter 13 even, right, and washing the disciples' feet. So it's this intimate moment, it's a weighty message, it's his final message to his disciples before his death. And today's text and message serve as really like this capstone. Essentially, we're, we're trying to, to wrap up what's been a full sermon over three chapters um, by focusing in on, on this one text. And so we're, we're bringing in together with this capstone text just all that we've been looking at over the past several weeks, the realities that Jesus is speaking of and the, and the means that he provides as a way forward. And so we're going to start by like staying zoomed out on the whole of the message that Jesus is giving to us in this Upper Room Discourse. Because we can't appreciate what's in that text that we just read and the, and the, the final verses of, of chapter 16 as well, unless we, we really wrap our minds around the, the whole of Jesus' message, right? He's preaching one sermon, right? We've broken it up into a lot of sermons so we can process it together. But uh, this is the importance of, of like studying Scripture in its context, right? It's why we preach through books of the Bible, and, and we need to study Scripture in its context and not just kind of cherry-pick things out. And so that's what we're trying to do today. So we're going we're gonna to have it zoomed out for, for quite a bit of our time together today, and then we're going to zoom in on this text and see how vital it is in order to live out what we've been talking about. Because the through line that we've been talking about over and over again, and, and kind of our emphasis for all semester here, is that the death equals gain. Death equals gain. We've been talking about that over and over again, and so we'll see that through line here today, and, and then we're going to zoom in and see how it's possible to live a life that actually embraces that. So we've been talking about this theme of death equals gain, and I, I could tell you, as I was reflecting on that, preparing for the sermon, I just was brought back to the first moment that I heard, to die is gain. I vividly, like it's almost visceral in my mind, of remember the first time that I heard that. It was a beautiful summer day, and I just had my tonsils taken out a couple weeks beforehand, and now I was headed to camp. Yes, it was computer camp, so feel free to call me a nerd. I don't, I will own it, okay? I mean, I actually went to two summer ca- or computer camps that summer, all right? So try to top me, all right? Um, but I was, my parents picked me up from camp that day, all right? And as we walked into the house, you could really feel this, like, ominous dread suddenly and just kind of the, I don't know, the environment, the spirit of the room. I don't, I don't know what it was because... Normally, my house was loud and rambunctious, a house full of four kids. I was the oldest at 12 with three younger siblings. But there was dead silence. And I've learned as a parent, like, that just doesn't happen. All right, we only have three boys, and it's always loud and rambunctious. But my siblings weren't home, and my parents were quiet. While I'd been at camp that day, my parents met with the doctors who took out my tonsils. And so they brought me to the couch in our living room. They set me down, and they sat on either side of me. And they shared, Brandon, I really can't imagine, like as a parent now, saying these words to my son. But he said, Brandon, you have cancer. And those are words that no 12-year-old expects to hear. And a mix of shock and fear overwhelmed me, even as my parents enveloped me in their arms and tried to comfort me, like, I was overwhelmed with fear, with sadness, with grief, with just a whole host of emotions. I mean, all I heard was death. Now, what else is a 12-year-old supposed to think, right? Like, death. I wept out of the fear of my life was going to end far sooner than I expected. I, I, I was angry, like I was weeping out of anger that I wasn't going to get to enjoy all that, that I had hoped for, right? Marriage, kids, like adventure, exploring the world, like a whole, I mean, even at 12 years old, I kind of had my bucket list, but I didn't call it that, right? Because at 12, you don't think about a bucket list because you still th- you think you're invincible, like death is so forever away. But I was angry. 
I wept out of the pain of confronting death at such a young age. And after a long time of just sitting and weeping and praying, I eventually went to my room that day and head spinning just in shock, feeling helpless and hopeless, honestly. I was a believer. I, I had trusted in Jesus at six years old. I grew up in a, a, a Christian home that preached the gospel regularly to me, and I, I trusted in Jesus, and yet I still, in that moment, just didn't even know how to handle that news. And that's when my youth pastor came over and sat down with me in my room, and he opened up God's word. I'm not sure he would have the boldness to do this uh, the same today, but in his um, young inexperience, um, he did, thankfully, as God intended, and he took me to Philippians 1.21, to live as Christ and to die as gain. It's the first time I heard that. And I don't remember much more after that, other than we prayed together and wept together as well, but I do remember how God captivated my heart with those truths, to live as Christ and to die as gain. And I've only come over the years to just God has continued to use that verse over and over again to teach me the depth of that. Like whole books could be written on just those few short words of the lessons that God has taught me from it. But that day, he captivated me with, those twin tr- with two twin truths. One, that physical death is ultimate gain. See, I knew that like, I was saved in Jesus, and I was thankful for that, and I knew I needed to be redeemed from my sins, and he had done that. But in many ways, it was just like, it was still this like far off thing. Like it was that like get out of jail free or hell free card, you know, like it was, it was um, like, yes, Jesus, I want to be with you forever. But like, let me do all these things I want to do first, right? But in that moment, like for whatever reason, like God just transformed my heart with his word, right? By the power of his spirit. And he just helped me to see that physical death is ultimate gain. Because to be in the presence of Jesus is far better than anything this world could possibly offer. And that was a balm to my soul. But he also taught me this, that to live is Christ. And that to live is Christ means that, that life is to be spent for Christ and like Christ. The one who died so that others might live. They live that he would die so that God might be glorified. And that gain was found through his death. And in a similar way, that if, if to live as Christ was to be true of my life for every moment that I had from there on out, that gain in life would have to be found in death to self. And I only grasped like a, just a hair of that in that moment, that day. But what God was convincing me of was that every moment I had left was to be spent on him and for him and not on myself. And I, did, I have not lived that out perfectly, let's be really clear. But he captivated me with that truth, and he brings me back to it all the time. He captivated me with the fact that, not, that, that life isn't about squeezing out every ounce of achievement and every ounce of enjoyment in this life, but instead it's to be spent on something, rather on, on someone much bigger than myself a purpose, and a person worth dying for. And I'm not talking about primarily about Jesus being worthy of a, a physical death of a martyr, though that's certainly the case here. But rather, we're talking about embracing death to self as a way of living modeled off of Jesus. To, to really embody to live as Christ means to embrace death to self. Because we're, we're talking about embodying what Jesus Talked about in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone wants to follow after me, he says, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That means die daily. Take up your cross daily, he says. For me that day, the peace and joy that washed over me through Philippians 1.21 was, was not just in the confident hope of an ultimate eternal gain after physical death, though that was certainly a a part of it. But even more so, it was in the gain of joy, peace, and purpose through death to self in whatever time I had left, whether that was weeks or months or years and decades. 
I had no clue at that point. My, mar- my parents had no clue. The doctors had no clue. We didn't know. But it was whatever I had left was to be spent not on myself but for Jesus Christ. God captivated me with that truth, and I, and I pray that we would be a people that are captivated by that truth as well. Like That's why we're focusing in on this, because it's so essential like, to be a healthy, vibrant community of God's people to embrace this way of living, that death equals gain, that dying to self is what Jesus is talking about all through John 13 to chapter 16. I mean, this is the, the big idea here, okay? The big idea is that in, in this upper room discourse is that the path to lasting joy, you could also say peace, you could also say fullness of life, abundant life, right? The path to lasting joy goes through the pain of death. In the past few chapters, we've seen Jesus preparing his disciples for death and emphasizing that death equals gain. Like in chapter 13, he made his death clear. He's going to be betrayed, and he, he says, and then he's, he's going to a place they cannot come. You can't follow me there, Jesus says. And so he's setting them up. He's, he's sharing with them once again, as he has a few times before, he's, he's reminding them, like, death is what I've come here to do. And that's the next step for me. And then in chapters 14 to 16, and the book ends of the sermon, all right, of his upper room discourse, he's hitting on the fact and emphasizing more specifically that the path to lasting joy goes through the pain of his death. First and foremost, it goes through the pain of his death because apart from his death, we have no gain. We have no lasting gain, no lasting joy, no lasting life. This is what he's getting at at the beginning in John chapter 14, verses 4 through 6. He says, And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. Like, how can we know the way? His disciples are confused. You see multiple times throughout this passage. They're just like, Jesus, we don't get what you're saying. And Jesus said to him, though, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he's talking about the way of his death. He is the way. Apart from him, like there is no path back to God. Because the reality is, is God created the world good and perfect. And we chose to go our own way. He was the perfect, good, righteous king of the universe that was freely given us abundant life in his presence. And yet we chose to try to be kings of our own lives. And that's not just true for the book of Genesis of Adam and Eve. It's true of each and every one of us every day. We try to put back that crown on our own lives. That's the essence of sin. And as a result, that separates us from a holy God. And we can't get back to him. Because we can't be good enough to get back, to measure back up to his holiness, to get back into his presence. No, our sin always separates us. Because as Isaiah says, our, even our good deeds are like filthy rags before God. Because you know even the good things you do, like it's, they're twisted up with all kinds of motives, right? People pleasing and a whole host of other things. Like even our best of intentions are like filthy rags. And so what Jesus does is he comes to take on our punishment, to take on the the wrath of God, the justice of God towards our sin, and also to, to make us clean before God, to give us forgiveness, and also to bring us back into perfect relationship with God, not by our own merits, not by us cleaning ourselves off and, and getting ourselves good before God and doing a whole list of things and being religious, no, but by his death as a substitute for us. Because it's a death that you and I could never die. Because he lived the perfect life. And then he rose from the dead, all right, to show that he was victorious over death and sin and the evil one. And so what Jesus is getting at in John at the beginning of this sermon is that the path to lasting joy goes through the pain of his death, first and foremost. And we see it on the other bookend, too, in the passage that, that we read this morning. Starting in verse 4 of chapter 16. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. All right, we, you know what? We literally just read Thomas say, Jesus, kind of, where are you going? All right, so you may be wondering, like, what's Jesus meaning? You're not asking me, where are you going? Um, well, it's kind of like, 
uh, the best way to explain it is like when my kids, um, when I, you know, say, hey guys, I'm, I'm heading out in the morning um, and they like run up to me and say, daddy, where are you going? Don't leave. It's more like that. Like they don't really care if I'm going to work. They don't really care if I'm going to a coffee shop. Like they really don't care. Like they're not worried about what I'm actually going to do because I think most of the time they don't really know what I do anyway. Um, right. But like, um, but they're like, they just don't want me to leave. And they're sad. Right. And that's what's happening here, right? It says, but because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. That's why you're asking that. You're not really, you really aren't getting this. I'm going to the Father because I've got to go through death so that you can have lasting joy in life. He's like, you're missing the point. It was never about just me being here physically. It was about something much bigger than that. And he goes on to say, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. We'll get into what that advantage is here in a little bit, but he says it's to your advantage. That, I'm sure for the disciples, that sounds really, really strange. And I think it sounds strange to most of us, right? Like, wouldn't we love to have Jesus present with us? <laughs> like, sitting next to us, telling us, like, what to do and, and how to do things and to encourage us along the way, like, to have his power to heal us and to, to empower us along the way. But, but Jesus says, no, it's actually to your advantage that I go. It's because the path to lasting joy goes through the pain of his death. It wouldn't have been good for us to hang on to him and say, don't leave us, and to try to hold him there like Peter did, right? Peter says, no, like Jesus, you don't have to die. I'll die for you. Jesus says, that's not what's needed. And then again, in, in chapter 16, verses 16 through 20, he's emphasizing this idea as well. He says, a little while and you'll see me no longer. All right, talking about his death. And again, a little while and you'll see me. Talking about his resurrection. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is he talking about? Essentially, that's what they're saying. Like, what in the world? Because they're, like, we can look at it and go, oh, that's his death and then his resurrection. But they don't see that yet, right? So they say, what's he saying to us? A little while and you'll not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that what they wanted to ask him, so he said to him, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? He responds to all their questioning and their confusion. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. Sorrow is a right and proper response to this, is what he's saying. But the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but... And the buts in Scripture are amazing. <laughs> but your sorrow will turn into joy. Your sorrow will turn into joy. Their sorrow over Jesus' death will be turned to joy. And in other words, the path to lasting joy goes through the pain of Jesus' death. And Jesus goes on to give us an illustration of what their experience will be like in the image of childbirth. All right, men, I know maybe you can't fully relate to this, but guess what? Jesus can't either, all right? But he gives this illustration just the same, all right? So verse 21, he says, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also. You have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one, will take your joy from you. Yes, this picture that Jesus gives is particular to the, to the disciples' experience because they will, they will experience his death and his resurrection in real time. But his death being the anguish of childbirth and his resurrection being the joy that comes afterwards. But this is a principle that goes beyond just their experience in that moment. It extends to us in the ongoing experience of the Christian life. Because, as we're saying here time and again, the, the big idea here is that the path to lasting joy goes through the pain of death. And we often say at Anthem that you're e either like going into a season of suffering, you're in a season of suffering, or you're coming out of a season of suffering. Because that's just part of the brokenness of this world. That's part of what the, the consequences of sin in our world. And while that's a really tough reality to deal with, we also see here that each experience of suffering, 
each experience of the anguish of childbirth brings us to a fuller experience of joy in Jesus. And it's a joy that can't be taken from you. And we may not understand why we go through all of the sufferings we go through. We may not be able to see all of God's purposes, or even in certain sufferings we experience, we may not be able to pin down exactly what God was doing in our lives. But we know by Romans 8.28 that he works for good in all things for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that verse 22 says he's giving us a joy that, as John Piper says, is indestructible. It's unstealable. It's, it's, it's completely secure. It's a joy that cannot be taken. I do want to say, like, if you're in the season of suffering, in this moment, these are, these are words of hope. But I know it's hard to process this in the midst of that. It's not always easy to take hold of these things. That's why we need community. That's why we need one another. That's why we need to be reminded, not just from the pulpit on Sundays, but to sing songs like we're singing today and to see those around us that, that have gone through suffering and have come out of it or that are even going through suffering right now that are grasping hold by faith to these truths because it's not always easy. But hear what Jesus says at the end of this passage. If you're walking through that suffering right now, he says, in the world you will have tribulation. And Jesus doesn't try to, to take that away from us, right? He doesn't try to just protect us from that tribulation. But instead, this is what he says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And that's the promise he gives us. That's the big part of the fact that his death is our gain, right? And, and so, Above all else in this upper room discourse, we see this primary fact that the path to lasting joy goes through Jesus' death. He takes on ultimate suffering, pain, and death as a substitute for us, and as a result, provides for us the path to lasting joy. But that's not the only kind of death and pain of death that we see in the, the upper room discourse. Right in the middle of chapter 14 and 16, we have chapter 15, where we've been the past two weeks here at Anthem. And in that, he's calling for, in light of his death, that we would live a life of death to self, a lifestyle of death. And, and to understand that the path to lasting joy goes through the pain of our own death. Em embracing death equals gain in our own day-to-day -day lives requires discomfort requires discipline, and it even requires despair at times. What Matt was talking about when he talked about seek, eat, and speak, those things that are drawn directly from John chapter 15, right, what he's talking about there, those things are costly. They may sound like basic things, right? Like seek God by being in his word and eat with one another a meal and, and speak the good news of the gospel. That may sound like basic things to the faith, and they are. The reality is, is this is the starting point, right, for a healthy, vibrant community and healthy, vibrant flourishing as God's people. But to live these things out, you will experience sorrow and death, death to self. You'll have to embrace the fact that death equals gain because abiding in Christ is costly. That image of being connected to the vine, right, it sounds good. We're connected into life, right, the fullness of life. But it's also, Jesus mentions there like, there will be pruning as well. Like as you encounter God's word and you seek him, you may despair over the sin you have exposed in your hearts. You have good news there that it, you've been washed free of guilt and shame through Jesus, but, but you may despair, rightly so, confessing before the Lord your sin. You're being pruned, and that's painful. It's painful, but it's, but it's gain too. All right, that pain of pruning leads to the gain of, of flourishing and fruitfulness and, and growth and life. That not only is good for you, but it's also good for those around you. And not only is abiding in Christ costly, but, but loving like Christ is costly as well. Right, we talk about it as eating, sharing a meal with one another weekly, right? And it's like, well, hey, I like food, so that's, uh, that's great. Like, uh, we'll gladly get together and have some good food with people. But the impetus behind that is, is much more than just like sharing a nice meal together, all right, and enjoying some of God's good gifts together. 
but it's actually about sharing life together so that we would know one another on a deep enough level that we can sacrifice and care for one another. That we can truly speak the truth and love to one another. That we can forgive one another. That we can rebuke one another when that's needed. And all of those things are painful. Like they're not easy. They're costly things. But it's the only way to the gain of true community. To life-giving community. To a community that actually is distinct from the world. And is something that's attractive to the world. Where people go, what is that all about? where people will know that you are his disciples. And so, yeah, abiding in Christ is costly. Loving like Christ is costly, but also speaking of Christ is costly. We saw it last week as we looked at at the hatred of the world that will come as a result. But it brings about a meaning and purpose and provides us a meaning and purpose to live for the glory of God and the proclamation of the gospel and for the good of others, right? That isn't just this temporary gain of things that are going to crumble and fall apart that won't last past our death or much longer than a decade or two past our death even, but to the eternal weight, to eternal investments in people and the world around us. So it's costly, but it's gain. And so, church, we're calling each other to this, to seek, eat, and speak because the path to lasting joy goes through the pain of death to self. Death equals gain. Death equals gain. I know this is an intense message. It's heavy. It's, it's, it's not a message that like, oh, we want to, like, it, you know, makes us feel happy-go-lucky in this moment, right? <laughs> anyway, like, thinking on death, right? I don't know how many times I've said the word death so far. Like, if you're counting, right, it's a lot. So it's heavy. But Jesus is This is his last sermon, and he emphasizes it over and over again. And he's encouraging them in this, that lasting joy and peace is only going to come through his death and then their death to self that's empowered by his death. Because he says, the beginning of chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. And in verse 27, he says it again, let not your hearts be troubled because peace comes through his death. And in chapter 15, in these, this hard call to abide in him and to love like him and to speak of him, in verse 11, he says that he's telling them these things for the sake of the fullness of their joy, right? This isn't just so that we would we'd be kind of some, um, like, some people that are just kind of ascetics, right, that, that, like, that, that embrace the, the suffering and we're stoic and those kind of things, but rather it's, it's for the sake of joy because joy comes through death. And as the disciples face sorrow and suffering in chapter 16, over and over again, we see that word sorrow come up. He ends chapter 16 and this sermon with that very clear declaration. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus recognizes that this is a heavy, weighty message. And he's encouraging time and time again. Because their joy and their life depends on it. Depends on it. And ours does as well. The path to lasting joy is made possible through Jesus' death, but we don't enjoy its fullness apart from ongoing dying to self daily. Practicing seek, eat, and speak is the basics. But I know this, this whole idea sounds foreign to us in so many ways, right? Because in our culture, like, the, the problem we face is we, we hear this thing and we hear this intense message and, it, like, it makes us uncomfortable, right? It feels weighty and it's like, I, like, it's hard for us to bear this message because our culture and all the other voices that we surround ourselves with are pursuing joy by avoiding the pain of death. Like, they're trying to send us messages that, hey, you find joy by avoiding the pains of life and the suffering of life in all these different ways. Our society is trying to help us avoid discomfort, discipline, and despair. All right, that doesn't mean we just like, we pursue it for the sake of despair, right? That's not what we're talking about here. But, th- but they're saying you, you've got to actively push it out because it's going, to, it's going to cripple your joy. It's going to cripple your life. When Jesus is saying the opposite. See, we, we do this in a few ways. We, we distract ourselves from discomfort. We distract ourselves from discomfort. I mean, think about it. Like, we avoid boredom 
or pain through screens, right? Like when we get bored, we pull up the screen. All right, we don't allow ourselves to sit in that boredom. We don't allow ourselves to be uncomfortable by the silence. Um, if, you're, um, if you're a person um, that you know, walks into a room full of a bunch of people that you don't know anybody and that excites you, you're weird like my wife and I don't understand you. But like, if you're like me, all right, the uncomfortableness of walking into those rooms can lead to me eventually going, if I don't get into a conversation fairly quick, pulling out my phone and looking like I'm checking my email and doing some important work, right? Like, I'm not the only one that's done it, okay? I know. But we avoid, we distract ourselves from discomfort, right? And if you're, if you're an extrovert that loves walking into those rooms, it's probably the opposite for you. When you're put in places by yourself, that makes you feel uncomfortable. And rather than enjoying the presence of God with you, you're tempted to pull out your phone and distract yourselves from the discomfort of the boredom and the silence. And so we distract ourselves from discomfort because we, we assume and we've bought into the culture that we pursue joy and life by avoiding the pain of death. And we do this in another way in that we distance ourselves from discipline. We distance ourselves from discipline or from constraints. And we avoid limiting our freedoms through a lack of deep commitments or relationships. I mean, like... We're such a last-minute culture at this point, right? I mean, in college students, you probably uh, can understand this. Like, you wait to sign up till the very last minute, right? Because of FOMO, right? We're fear of missing out. We, we, might, we might have a better thing that comes along the way. All right, and don't worry, college students. Like, I've got a whole host of pastors that are signing up for an event next week that all waited till this week to sign up. Um, and so you're not the only ones that are doing it, all right? We all do it because we're worried we might have something else better that we're going to miss out on. And so we don't put constraints on ourselves because we want as much as possible, we want as much freedom as possible. And I'm not talking about like political, religious freedom, like don't hear me addressing that. I'm talking about like our autonomous self, like freedom to do as we please. We don't want to limit that. We don't want to provide discipline and structures in our life. And, and so like we avoid committed relationships. We avoid, you know, committing to anything too long term. And this keeping our freedom at all costs, though, is actually at the root, I believe, of so much lack of joy, of so much loneliness, of so much of the lack of life that our culture is feeling. Because when you're trying to have as much freedom as possible, like you can't enjoy the goodness of meaning and community, of purpose and community. It's impossible, right? To have Deep purpose and deep community requires you to give up some of your freedoms for the sake of others and for the sake of that purpose. And so as we try to like keep our bucket of our heart and our lives of freedom completely full and we won't allow anything to touch that, we are inherently choosing a path that avoids true joy and true life. Even though our culture thinks that true joy is found in that freedom, it's actually found in, in the opposite of that. We distance ourselves from discipline as a result. And lastly, we desensitize ourselves from despair. We're going through deep pain, deep sorrow. We avoid it through addictions, oftentimes. Substances, screens, binging, whether it's alcohol, drugs, maybe just like, like sleeping it off, right? Like we're just going to sleep a lot. Right, to like avoid having to think about it. Or we busy ourselves, right? Like we desensitize ourselves by just like making sure we're going so fast that we don't slow down so we don't even have to think about it, right? Like, so it can happen in lots of ways, but we desensitize ourselves from our despair. <laughs> See, we're pursuing joy by avoiding the pain of death. We've bought into the way of the culture. And men, like, I've got to stop here and give a particular challenge because. I believe, men, we are particularly in our culture prone to this. We've bought into this. Like our, particularly like my generation and younger has bought into this as men. That like, hey, the path to, to joy, the path to life is found in avoiding pain and avoiding discipline and avoiding discomfort. We flee those hard things. But men, hear me. Like, joy is not found in avoiding those things. It's the opposite. And, and there's some people, even non-Christians, that are, that are recognizing this, men. 
And this is true for ladies too, just, but, but men just particularly listen. There are people, non-Christians, that are catching hold of common grace truth of what Jesus is talking about here. Not the fullness of it, but the common grace truth in it. That like Jordan Peterson and some of the kind of like modern day Stoics, you may listen to some of them. And, and that can be good. There's common grace wisdom and truth there, right? Because there's this reaction that's happening. Where they recognize, man, this is just not satisfying to try to just hold on to kind of my laissez-faire, f- free lifestyle. And so they go the way of like discipline and, you know, uh, like hard workouts, do hard things and all that kind of stuff. But the reality is, is like that's kind of responding like Peter did. <laughs> when Jesus says, I'm, I'm going to go and die, and, and Peter says, you don't have to, I will die for you. <laughs> and it's like, Oh, Jesus, we don't need your death. Like, let me take care of it so that you can accomplish all that you've actually come to accomplish, which is to help us avoid death. And what Jesus is saying is that, no, like, while dying to self is vital, it's impossible apart from my death. And so, men, whether you're on one end of the spectrum or the other, whether you're trying to avoid the pain of death or you're, like, trying to embrace dying to self on your own, know that it is impossible apart from the death of Jesus. So how, how does Jesus make it possible for us to walk that path of lasting joy, of lasting life? How can we find it in the midst of sorrow, suffering, and dying to self? How can we walk that path? Well, that's what we're talking about in, this, in chapter 16. And don't worry, I won't preach another full sermon here, okay? This is just, uh, but we got three important things all right, that all that helps us to understand why they're so important and so vital. Because otherwise we miss the importance of it. Because see, Jesus' death provides what we need to walk the path of lasting joy. And he provides three things for the path. Three things. So that we can endure sorrows and suffering in this world and embrace dying to self daily. Through his death, Jesus provides, one, the presence of God. Verses 7 through 15. If we're going to die to self regularly, if we're going to seek, eat, and speak as God's people on a consistent basis and endure in that, in the sorrows and sufferings of this world, we need the presence of God, and Jesus' death provides that for us. That's what Jesus is promising in verse 7, as he promises to send the Holy Spirit in his place as an advantage to us. In verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you to the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, or the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Previously in chapter 14, verse 18, he had said, I won't leave you as orphans. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. But for most of us, that doesn't sound like an advantage, right? Like I said earlier, like it... It would be much simpler if Jesus was just literally right here with us and I could get off this stage and he could preach to us, right? But let's take a moment. The disciples had that and they didn't get half of what Jesus was saying, right? What Jesus is getting at is that by having the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, you will be able to understand his truth in a way that the disciples weren't able to. Right? The Holy Spirit is an advantage. All right? He's not... He's not like a temporary, less than ideal kind of solution. Right, he's not like the Zoom version of connecting with God. Right, I don't know about like how many of you have had Zoom meetings or Zoom classes or whatever. Like it's always like, okay, like we can't be together in person, so at least like at least we have this. I know it sucks, like no one really likes to sit on Zoom for a long time, but at least we can like see each other, right? So It's a temporary, less than ideal solution. The Holy Spirit's not like that. Jesus says it's to your advantage. Like it's better than the Zoom version, right? The Holy Spirit is not some second-rate experience of God. And yes, we we do often forget about the Spirit in our circles, right? Because we, like... Oftentimes, like, if you didn't know we're Baptist, we're Baptist, and, um, and, and we're just, like, a little, like, oh, the Holy Spirit, he's kind of mysterious, like, I, I don't know, like, that makes me uncomfortable. The Holy Spirit isn't some second-rate experience of God. It's to our advantage that we have him with us and in us rather than the physical Jesus next to us. Do you get what he's saying there? Why is that true? Well, verses 14 through 15, because the Holy Spirit is a perfect communicator of Jesus' truth. 
Jesus says, he will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. It's not like the telephone game with the Holy Spirit, right? Like it went from the Father to Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and somehow it's going to get lost in translation or like, and be jumbled on the other side. In fact, it's even more clear because the Holy Spirit's inside of us. And nothing is lost in translation because he is perfectly unified with the Son and the Father as God, three in one. And so he's the perfect communicator of God's truth to us. And he's also present with us and in us everywhere we go. When Jesus took on flesh, he chose limitation, right? He could only be in one place with a particular group of people in time and space. And the Holy Spirit, though, is with me when I go to my work, you when you go to your work or your class and your home and your neighborhood. He's with all of us at the same time all over the place because he's omnipresent with us. And so the Holy Spirit isn't some second-rate experience of God, a temporary, less-than-ideal solution, but he is our advantage, this side of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. And here's a couple of other things we see in this passage. It's good news for us in the dying to self. The Holy Spirit's our advantage because the Holy Spirit will empower our witness. All right, verses 8 through 11 I won't read this all, and we won't gonna, like, gonna pick it apart here, but verse 8 kind of summarizes it all. It says, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. What Jesus is saying there is that the Holy Spirit is with you while you are speaking of him to the world around you. And that means that as we die to self by witnessing to Jesus in the world, and we experience the hatred of the world, we can be confident that that speaking of Christ, of the good news of Christ, is not a fool's errand. It's not a fool's errand because the Holy Spirit is with you in power to bear witness to Jesus. It's not based just on the words that you say, but the Holy Spirit can take our feeble words and he can produce fruit in the hardest of soils. The Holy Spirit will empower our witness. And lastly, the Holy Spirit will enable our understanding. Verse 12 through 13 So I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. The Holy Spirit will enable our understanding. And so as we die to self by abiding in Christ and living out his commands and being in his word, we can be confident that the spirit will bear fruit in our lives. He will help us to understand and he will produce his fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in us and through us and around us even. He'll bring that fruit. And so Jesus' death provides what we need to walk through the path of lasting joy, but first and foremost, by the presence of God. Secondly, and related to that, is the promise of prayer, verses 23 to 28. We'll just read verses 23 to 24. In that day you will ask nothing of me, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of my Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. See, Jesus' death provides us direct access to God the Father. We no longer need a priest or some religious human leader uh, to go to God on our behalf. Because Jesus is our mediator. Jesus reconciles us to a loving Father. All right, and Jesus isn't up there trying to convince God, like, oh, please give them this thing um, for them. But no, it says in verse 27, for the Father loves you. All right, just like, it's like this, like Jesus has made a way for us to come back to God. And so when we turn like the prodigal son from running away from him, the, the father of that prodigal son doesn't just wait for him to come. He runs to him and embraces him and sweeps him up in his love and throws a party for him. And so like the promise of prayer is that we have a blank check for our joy. Ask in Jesus' name, and he'll give it to you. That's incredible. That's amazing. Let that sink in. Ask in Jesus' name, and he'll give it to you. It's a blank check for your joy. But let's be clear. This isn't some prosperity gospel. Name it and claim it. Whatever it is you name, you get it. No, the key here is that our checks have to be cashed in Jesus' name. All right, like 
Praying in Jesus' name isn't just a cool little tagline or a magic phrase of word at the end of a prayer, all right, to get what we want. No, praying in Jesus' name means like when you go to a bank to cash a check that's significant, they're especially going to check your ID to make sure it matches and aligns with the check you're trying to cash to get what you want, right? In the same way, like when Jesus says, pray in my name, he means you have to be like praying like I would pray. You have to be praying the kinds of prayers that Jesus would pray so that when like you're praying those prayers, like they check out. They're aligned with him and his identity and his purposes and his will. We've got to pray the kind of prayers Jesus would pray. And it's there that we have this incredible promise. But what do those prayers look like? That's, we'll see that in chapter 17. Next week, chapter 17, the whole thing is Jesus' prayer. All right, so we'll, we'll see more of this. So kind of keep this in mind as you go into that. But our, in our current context, the fact that the Spirit is with us and the Spirit was with Jesus, our prayers must be to the Father in the name of Jesus, guided by the Spirit. They've got to be Trinitarian prayers. All right, Jesus very clearly says that you know, to pray prayers like him means that they need to be to the Father in his name, guided by the Spirit. If we're going to pray powerful prayers, ask it and receive it kind of prayers that lead to lasting joy, they've got to be guided by the Spirit. We need the Spirit of God even in this. Yes, in our witnessing. Yes, in our abiding. And, and, but, but particularly in our prayer life. Kent Hughes says this, Apart from the Spirit's assistance, our prayers are limited by our own reason and intuition. They're limited. But with the Holy Spirit's help, they become informed by heaven. And then he goes on to say, thus, in spirit-directed prayer, we will think God's thoughts after him. His desires will become our desires, his motives, our motives, his ends, our ends. And so as we seek to die to self through seeking, eating, and speaking, we can be confident that the Father is going to answer our cries for help if we're praying in the Spirit, if we're guided by him. Can we be confident that he's going to hear our pleas for mercy and answer with a yes, that he's going to respond to our requests for strength and endurance as we live, live this life of death to self? We can be confident as we align ourselves with him. And lastly, we can be confident because the third thing that Jesus provides is his peace, his peace. And that's what brings us to the last portion of the text. And I'll just read verse 33 that we've been in several times this morning already. I've said these things to you, that in, my, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. See, Jesus provides peace in the face of the hatred of the world, the suffering and sorrow caused by the brokenness of our world, and the pain of daily dying to self. How does he do this? Because he's overcome the world. How does he give us powerful promises of prayer? How does he provide the spirit to us? Because he's overcome the world. And we see that in his resurrection. It's the fact that like death is not the end of Jesus' story that actually drives home and secures the fact that death does equal gain. Death would not be gain if it just ended with Jesus' death and it didn't result also in his resurrection. Death is gain because death is not the end. Yes, the path of lasting joy goes through the pain of death, but that's because Jesus overcame death and the grave and sin and the world. Jesus is victorious, and we can be too. Even as we choose to die to self, we're victorious, and we're experiencing his victory. So church, no matter what suffering you must walk through, no matter what sorrow you face, no matter the daily things you're called to lay aside for the sake of Christ, you can enjoy the peace and joy and life of Christ because Jesus' victory is sure. It's secure. So how do you apply those promises? Very briefly, I'll just sum it up like this. Pray. <laughs> like you, you take advantage of the Spirit with you by praying. You take advantage of the, the, the victory of Jesus by praying in the name of Jesus, confidently relying on the Spirit through prayer. And that means we need to have consistent planned times of prayer, and we need to have continual prayer throughout the day. That's how we walk in the Spirit and live in the Spirit and rely on the Spirit that is to our advantage. And so we need to pray, because if we're going to die to self, and we're not relying on the Spirit, 
It's impossible. It's impossible. Psalm 127 says, you know, if, if the Lord doesn't build the house, those who build it labor in vain. If the Lord doesn't support you in your dying to self, your death to self is in vain. And so, church, you have everything you need to walk the path of lasting joy through the pain of death. Praise God, Jesus has provided it all through his death because his death is gain and our death is gain as well. But here's the question. We all like the ideas of being a church that impacts the world, all right? A church that does good for others, that brings glory to God. The question is, will we pay the cost? Like, will we die to self? Will we embrace death equals gain? First, by embracing the death of Jesus as our hope and his resurrection as our secure victory. And then, in our daily dying to self. Will we put off avoiding death or trying to do it on our own and instead rely on the power of the Spirit in prayer and embrace death as gain? Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning grateful for the good news of Jesus' death as our gain. And Lord, I pray that though this was a, a heavy word from Jesus, God, that we would walk in it. God, that you would reveal specifically in each one of us by the power of your spirit that's present with us what it is that we must turn from, what we must let go of, what me, we must die to in order to have the gain of lasting joy in you, in order to walk in your way, in order to bring joy and life to others and glory to your name. God, may we be a church that embodies death equaling gain that we might see 1% of Columbia come to faith in you, that we might see the restless find renewal in you, God. I just pray, God, we cry out today, Lord, we believe these things are in Jesus' name. These are a part of your will, and God, we cry out that they would be done. Not for our sake, not for our glory, not so that we can look and, and be proud of what we accomplished, but so that we can stand back and see how great our God is, and others can see the same. God, we pray all of this in Jesus' mighty, wonderful, gracious, powerful name. Amen.